Hi, and welcome to episode 163 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. I am Laurel Bannock, and Professor Kevin Tipton and myself today had a really great chat with Professor Graham Close all about body composition. Now, I know I've covered this topic before quite a few times, and uh, there will be a little bit of crossover. But really, the the real reason for having this conversation today with Graham and Kev was so that we could really delve into issues that we will find ourselves with as practitioners, researchers, when it comes to the actual, the equipment, the kit, the methods, and the assumptions that we take from those methodologies and how we apply them into practice as it relates to body composition generally. And of course, there are many techniques and methods available to us from super high-tech MRI, the quote-unquote gold standard DEXA, which we wrestle with that idea in our discussion, as you will find out, all the way down to the humble skinfold which perhaps is rightly or unrightly shouldn't be the bad guy and should be the absolute hero of body composition in the applied setting. Hence, the recent review by Professor Close and his team on Comeback Skinfolds All is Forgiven, a narrative review of the efficacy of common body composition methods. So we we do use that paper as a, as a really good framework to our chat, but we dive in and out as we do on this podcast of the context, the issues, we unpack the evidence and discuss it from the perspective of applied practice, which as you'll see, does warrant a different view, a different perspective on some of these techniques where through the lens of purely a researcher, a laboratory-based scientist, for example, maybe there are different ways and views of these methods within body composition. So I can't wait for you to hear us talk about these things where we talk about the various methods, we talk about how they work, how they function, and perhaps where some of the problems are for applied level practitioners. We do discuss the science, things like the various direct, indirect, and doubly indirect methods, the various compartments, but we all talk about it within the context of how these these techniques, these gadgets, these methodologies work and how they assess the various aspects of body composition that we're looking to get this data from. Before you guys get to listen to that conversation, which I know you'll enjoy as much as I did, and I know you'll get a lot out of it, do come check out everything that we do at the Institute Performance Nutrition. We have recently relocated to Edinburgh from London, so that's one piece of news you may not be aware of. And uh, we have all sorts of projects that we're getting into with a series of research projects. We have a publication you'll have heard me and Kev talk about in recent podcasts that hopefully is going to come out soon. And there's a bunch of other studies that we're getting into between Kev and I and the team. Of course, we have our online advanced level diploma program, distance learning in performance nutrition, an entirely practice-focused program. It is it is very much an advanced program, but it is all about applying the science into practice, not just about the science. So check out our program should you wish to specialize in sport and exercise nutrition, particularly if you have a background in sports science, exercise science, strength conditioning. Our program is perfect for you, as well as nutritionists, of course, who wish to specialize specifically 
in performance nutrition, come check out our program at www.theiopn.com, where you can also find information about our podcast, all other episodes. You can learn about the team and, of course, our platform for sport and exercise nutritionists are our new software platform to help practitioners work with their clients, individuals, teams. We call it SEMPRO because it's for professional sport and exercise nutritionists. You can find all of that information at www.theiopn.com. So let's get to it. Let's get into this conversation about body composition with Professor Graham Close and Professor Kevin Tipton. Enjoy. Right. So it's been a while since I have been doing some podcasts, so I'm super excited to bring another episode of the Institute Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And today we have two amazing people for us to have a good conversation here with, one of which, of course, is Professor Kevin Tipton, who is our Director of Science and Research at the Institute of Performance Nutrition. And I am particularly excited to welcome back Professor Graham Close today, who we've had on many episodes over the past. But of course, there's an extra link here between you guys, isn't there, Graham and Kev? Yes, because uh, I've been trying to poach Kev to John Moles to, as a uh, as a visiting professor. So yes, we're now actually as well as good friends. Well, I hope we can say we're good friends, Kev. We're also uh, colleagues as well. Absolutely, both. I'm very excited to have that link, and I think it it's a nice addition to our academic repertoire, if you will, at the Institute to be linked with such a prestigious program as you guys do. So well, it, it, for me, it comes back to like the very first podcast we did, which is, dare I say it, Graham, was a very long time ago. It's like five, six, seven years ago, something like that. No. Anyway, that was with yourself and James Morton, of course. And I think the first paper that I got involved with that was published was that case study that we all did mm. with you guys as a collaboration with LJMU. So we like to feel that at the IOPM, we're sort of like the Switzerland, so to speak, of what we're doing in our field. But we do have a close link with you guys for a good reason, because LJMU, you're great at what you do, particularly with sport and exercise nutrition. I guess while we're quickly talking about it, Graham, because not everyone is necessarily familiar with, with yourself or you guys. This might be the very first podcast that they've jumped onto. And since it's been a little bit of a while since I last put out a podcast, got a bunch coming up, of course. Maybe you guys could just give a quick bit of background about yourself, starting with, with yourself, Graham. Yeah, so I'm currently a professor of human physiology at Liverpool John Moores University, where I've been, I did my undergraduate degree at Liverpool John Moores back in 1996. So Ooh. I had a brief, <laughs> exactly, yes. I had a brief sabbatical, seven years sabbatical at the University of Liverpool, where I was brushing up on some of my basic molecular biology skills in the area of free radicals. I'm back at John Moores now. And perhaps of more interest to a lot of the listeners is the, the second part of my life where I I'm currently the head of nutrition for England Rugby, head up at the sport nutrition program for the European Tour Golf and Ryder Cup teams. And I consult with a variety of other organisations. This year I'm consulting with Aston Villa, which I, I believe Kevin will be happy about. I'm sure I remember hey. that Kevin was an Aston Villa fan. So that's one of my consultancies for this year as well. Villa, that's awesome. Kev, come on, tell us. If they don't know 
who you are because you should be very familiar to our guests now, but let's just have a quick overview. As you say, I'm you know now, thanks to you, the Director of Science and Research for the Institute of Performance Nutrition, and very happy. And thanks to Graham, I'm also a visiting professor at Liverpool John Moores University. And to make it clear to people, I don't get paid anything to do that. So people often say, gosh, you must be raking it in. No, it's simply the honor of being involved is why I've done that. You know, you said 96 and I'm going, "Uh oh, (laughs) I'm a lot older than that. (laughs) So yeah, I've been doing this a long time and, and I started my career, I would say in Florida, but mostly became known for working with Bob Wolf in Galveston, Texas. And that was such a privilege to learn from a man who, despite the fact that I'm talking to two of the sharpest people I've ever met, you can't touch Bob Wolf's brain. Mm. You know, he's amazing. So I was lucky and I've always said it's better to be lucky than good. And so that was my career in a nutshell. You guys are just incredible in terms of your contributions and overall impact to sport and exercise science and sport and exercise nutrition. I'm feeling humble sitting here with you. I can honestly say, actually, both of you have equally had the most profound impact on me and my career. And I've done pretty well of late. And, you know, I'd like to thank you both for your involvement in shaping me over the years. Although, Graham, you're the baby of the group here. So to speak, you are the baby here. So I'm not even talking about how old I am. Right. Okay, let's get into it. So the reason why I have assembled this group here to have this conversation is because, Graham, your group recently published another really, really useful review on Comeback Skin Folds, All is Forgiven. And of course, it was your narrative review of the efficacy of common body composition methods in applied sports practice. And We're absolutely going to talk about that paper. We're also going to come at this from the perspective that we're obsessed at in the IOPN. And you, of course, are Graham, hence relatively recent podcast that we've done on your paper to podium paper and lectures you've done for us at the IOPN, of course. But, But of course, we're, you know, our whole thing is about bridging this gap between science and practice. So the purpose of this conversation today is not just to talk about the various methods of body composition, the science, if you like. What we're really interested in is how should that influence practice? Off microphone just a minute ago, we were talking about food first and how perhaps that term has become oversimplified. And I understand there might be a paper coming up that's related to that, Graham. My bugbear is this concept of evidence-based practice, that word, and oh, I'm evidence-based or whatever. I like the idea of being evidence-informed because as a practitioner, you've got a lot to consider, not just the science or the evidence. There's, There's all sorts of crazy stuff that goes on in quotes unquotes the real world to include individual needs and preferences and financial considerations? And is it even remotely practical under the circumstances and all that stuff? And that's why I really like this paper, this review, because as sport and exercise nutritionists, body composition is is absolutely something that we're involved with. And it's one of those things that if you were to differentiate a clinical nutritionist from a performance nutritionist or sports nutritionist, body composition as opposed to just weight, performance, as opposed to just health, is something that we're very much into. But as Kevin, I know, because of 
the various conversations we've been having with our students on our journal club, recent lectures, and of course, the, the various contributions you've provided us with, Graham, we need to be much more critical in our evaluation of the information and tools and resources and so on that we're going to use to make the decisions that we make and the recommendations we're ultimately going to give. So anyway, let me just bring this back to you, Graham. And why did you feel the need to put this review out, you and your colleagues, for the paper? Given there's quite a lot of work out there on body composition, there have been reviews. I've done numerous podcasts on on this topic, but I have a feeling this one's going to be particularly interesting. So Graham, tell us. I guess it comes from what you were saying about in my introduction, about that, having a, a foot in both camps. And as you say, whenever you work as a sport nutritionist, you will perform some body composition assessments at some point. Without doubt, you will. And despite it being probably the most common tool for a sport nutritionist, it's amazing that there's still no gold standard technique. You hear people talk about things like DEXA as the gold standard And then when you try and find where that's come from, that's just one of these nebulous terms that people just decide will call something a gold standard. And what I was finding a lot is when you work in elite sports teams, almost the use of skin folds was put to bed about five or 10 years ago because it wasn't seen as sexy enough. We had all these machines that actually give percentages and and they give nice little pretty pictures. and, And when you actually come to look at it, What I was finding is the amount of controls you needed to put on things to use them type of equipment that we would use nicely in a a controlled laboratory environment. In the actual real world of applied practice, I was beginning to realize that we weren't able to put them controls on it. And we can touch on them later, what these controls are. So because of that, I'd found in my own practice, I'd gone back to using the humble skinfold caliper and actually finding that I was probably getting more meaningful and more beneficial data. And I was often having to have a conversation with directors of performance of why are we not doing anything that seemed more novel and more sexy than than a skinfold caliper. And I just felt that it was about time to write a review paper that really looked at body composition assessment from the eyes of the practitioner rather than from the eyes of the research scientist. And I think they're two very different things. Graham, that final bit of what you just said, I think is particularly important for people to be bearing in mind as we expand this conversation today, because I've talked about the importance of context, as we all know, in fact, to the extent that you guys in some of your lectures have even put bubbles of the word context in a picture of me as a joke. (laughs) So you know, but I don't apologize for that because context is important. But actually, my new buzzword, Graham, is relevant. Is it relevant? And you're sitting there making these decisions as a practitioner, and you've got all sorts of things <coughs> that will influence the choices that you make, including another word you just used, Graham, is sexiness. And particularly in sort of elite pro football, for example, something I'm now working a lot in, it's particularly interesting how the perception of what we're doing by the athlete, by the client, by the person that we're directly trying to to impact is something that is an important factor, I feel, Graham, where we're going to talk in a minute about different types of body composition methodologies, which involves some pretty sexy gadgets and, and toys. And of course, the humble skinfold caliper by perception to 
the athlete has an unfair image, if you like, to the client, or maybe it does, or, or maybe it doesn't. Graham, what are your thoughts on that just briefly about the perception of the gadgetry and the assumption of its sort of accuracy importance, but bearing in mind that the impact that that has in what we're trying to get our clients to do, which effectively is behavior change as a tool, maybe some of those gadgets and their impact on behavior change has something that's worth considering. What what are your thoughts on that? People always want the next best thing. If something is tried and tested and excellent, there almost seems a, well, yeah, we know about that. What else is there? And an example I use of this all the time is creatine. For me, creatine is still the best supplement we probably have out there from a sports performance. Yeah, It shocks me how many sports teams aren't using it because we've known about it for 20 years and they want the next best thing to creatine. And actually, there isn't anything. And that's just one example. And I think that's the same with the, the humble skinfold caliper. We've been doing it for absolutely years. And then all these new things come along where they give a lot more detail. I'm doing detail in, in quote marks because when you actually look at where this detail comes from, a lot of this detail is guesswork. But because it's in a printout and it looks pretty, then what you're getting is people buy into it. And, and I've seen this recently with some of the new ultrasound <laughs> technology where you can ultrasound somebody, which is basically a set of skinfold calipers that then does all the guesswork and puts it in a nice, pretty, colourful picture. People think that that's now, while that's that's measuring this, where actually it's not, it's guessing it based on the same assumptions as skinfold calipers. But you were right that, you know, you put somebody on a DEXA scanner and you show them the picture of where the body fat is. Often that can have a more profound effect on behaviour change than taking a few measurements. So I guess it comes to, the relationship you have with the clients and that level of honesty and that level of trust where actually they understand why we're doing it. And the other thing about it is because of the, the speed of it and the cost and the fact that it doesn't involve ionizing radiation, we can do it on a every second week, which I do think has certainly had effect in my hand on behavior change when we know that there's a measure coming every two or three weeks. Yeah. And you know, this is not an either or scenario, is it? These are all tools in a toolbox. And actually, you might be using multiple tools at the same time, like, for example, beginning end of season decks, and then skin folds throughout the season. And so on. We'll, we'll get into that. But Kev, we talk a lot to our students about critical thinking and your thing of being skeptical and open minded that you you're really driving through to our, our students. But this concept of belief, particularly in in science and accuracy and stuff like that, what are your thoughts to share on that? What occurred to me as I was listening is that it's certainly true that a lot of coaches, athletes, and even practitioners are going to assume that because it's got fancy bells and whistles, that a method is better. But as Graham described quite nicely, it's not necessarily true. You still have, I mean, the algorithms that you know DEXA uses, most DEXA manufacturers will not reveal their algorithms they're sort of just making it up. We talked about in the lecture yesterday, you've got to think about what you're actually measuring. What are you measuring with DEXA? What are you measuring with skin folds? And then decide how to utilize that information. And I think a lot of people just take it for granted that because DEXA says there's this much body fat, that there's this much body fat. But that's not necessarily true when you look at you know the details of, of what is actually being measured there. Yeah. 
we're going to unravel these things as it relates to the main methods that practitioners and scientists, researchers, and so on will use. And as the review does, Graham, you've given us some great insight into each method. And from a, an applied perspective, you've helped provide a framework that I think is yet another useful resource for practitioners to have at their hands to make the right decisions at the right time. But Graham, we've referring to body composition. I think the listeners know what we mean by the term body composition, but why is it so important for us as applied sport and exercise nutritionists to, to be obsessed, if you like, with body composition? And why do we even need to test it anyway, Graham? That's a probably better question than you actually think it is, to be honest, Lauren, because in some sports, I don't know if we do. You're right, we have become obsessed with it. In other sports, it's a key component of performance. We only need to think about sports such as cycling, which involves transporting a mass, i.e. your mass on the object. The more of that mass, the more wattage is needed to actually move that, so the harder it would be. And we've seen remarkable changes in in the physique of cyclists, maybe over the last decade, as this has become more of a realization. Likewise, in, in the sports where I work, such as rugby, we know that mass is important. Let's go back to simple biomechanics. You know, force is mass times acceleration. And if we want to import more force into contact, we're going to need more mass or more acceleration. And ideally, that mass will be lean mass because that will allow us to transport it more efficiently for 80 minutes in a rugby game, rather than just, you know, there's a reason why sumo wrestlers can't do an 80-minute rugby game, because we also need that aerobic component. So an understanding of body composition, I think, is really important for performance. But I also think it's important for health as well. We can focus on (coughs) some sports where we know that, I know you've covered it on previous podcasts, you know, the relative energy deficiency in sport reds, and we can begin to track of people becoming too lean. I think that's just as important as people over. So I think it's an important tool in our toolbox, as you talk about. I also do think it's been overemphasized in some sports a little bit. You know, I've seen loads of examples in my sport of rugby where some of the best players in the team are the ones who've got the worst body compositions. And likewise, you know, some of the best players have got the best body compositions. So it's a very individualized thing. I would say it's important to measure. I would just argue that we shouldn't become obsessed with it. Yeah. You know, like we're saying, it's a tool in the toolbox, although all nutritionists, performance nutritionists clearly should have an understanding, but also a competency in the ability to choose the right tools and the strengths and limitations of that, which is something that I want to get into in a lot more detail in a minute. But Kev, Graham used the word gold standard. And in this review and everywhere on this topic, we hear terms like criterion methods and, and so on. Where do you think the gap lies on between, well, science and practice, particularly as it relates to the information that we're reading in laboratory research studies that are using these techniques that derive information that we as practitioners use to inform our practice. Is there anything there? I mean, and I'm thinking very much about your lecture yesterday, of course, but what are your thoughts on that? The general principle is what we always try to emphasize, which is every method that you're going to use has strengths and limitations. And so it's important for the practitioner to understand those strengths and limitations so that they can utilize that method effectively. 
So, you know, if you compare DEXA to skin folds, as Graham said, not everybody can go and get a DEXA. And, you know, you have to go to a certain place, a lab or or a hospital that has the DEXA to do it. Whereas in the skin folds, you can do it out in the field. And as long as you understand the limitations of those measurements, then they're just as valuable if done properly, of course, which we're going to assume everybody's going to do. So, which I'm not sure is a safe assumption, but if you're old enough or young enough or whatever to remember, when I was training, underwater weighing was the gold standard. There were problems with that, and you had to understand what those problems were in order to effectively interpret that. And I think Graham touched on this earlier, which is I remember having tons of trouble with coaches about how important those measurements were. In many cases, they would take that as, as you say, gold standard, and you go, hang on, hang on, we got to interpret this a little bit, you know. That is why we're having this conversation and we're recording it for the benefit of our listeners and students and our colleague practitioners and researchers out there. And I don't mean for what I'm about to say to come across in any particularly accusatory or negative or insulting way or whatever, but there are a lot of people, which I would include myself very much in the past, was ignorant of these issues, these limitations or the you know and some people are very they're ignorant of their own ignorance on this topic so they're just sort of happily using these technologies because of the perception of their accuracy and i'm thinking you know there's all these sort of functional tests that exist particularly in the nutrition industry that you've got blood urine saliva stool testing and so on and goes off to a fancy lab and comes back with these fancy printouts that as you say Graham, and of course, there's an assumption there, not just by the patient, the client, the athlete, but the practitioner themselves are not actually aware of how misleading that information is. And part of that is because of lack of the appropriate education in this, which is missing because it's very much a commercially guided product orientated area, isn't it, Graham? And, you know, we have this issue with supplements, of course, but maybe people don't realize that exists with testing, gadgets, machines, you know, that counts for a lot of money also out there in the industry. Yeah. So one of the hardest parts of this paper was figure two. I can talk about figure two because it's an open access paper. If anyone wants to go and- I'll uh, link to it, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And figure two at the end, we tried to put together a flow diagram whereby in different situations, each different tool could be the best choice for you. So rather than say, this is what we believe is a gold standard, what is the best in a specific scenario? And in some situations, we came to the conclusion that an accurate measurement of body weight would be the best in that situation with the tool that you've got available to you. Now, when we say there's no gold standard, I guess technically there is, which is cadaveric dissections, now, I've managed to convince coaches to let me take muscle biopsies. I'm not convinced I would let them kill a player so I could <laughs> cut them up and, and analyse the body fat on, on the cadaver. So we've got to remember that everything is related back to that cadaveric dissection. So where Kevin talked about hydrostatic weighing, you know, again, what's the criteria measured it's related back to. So, yeah, I think it's important point that, I'm not dismissing any of these techniques. What we're saying is that the practitioner needs to be aware of the limitations and the constraints of that particular technique and then use an informed decision based on what do they want to achieve from it. 
So, for example, if we wanted to measure bone mineral content, well, we've no option. We've got to use DEXA. Likewise, if we want some limb-specific measurements, again, we've not really got an option. If what we want is something much more simpler, we want to track changes in body fat over a period of time, well, then actually we might say that the skin fold is, is the ideal one at that point. If we want an idea of total body water, we might do with some of the, the fighters that we're working with. Well, then the bioelectrical impedance comes into it. So they've all got their own usefulness. What I don't think practitioners do enough is ask themselves, in this specific situation with the constraints that I have with this client, what is now the preferred methodology? And hopefully that's what figure two in this table can help with. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I've become obsessed with asking myself in my own practice, you know, is this actually relevant? What is the relative value of this? Or a phrase I used to use a lot, which is you can, but should you, you know, Mm. speaking of figures in figure one, you visually display very well a number of things I just want to quickly get into, which is the various compartments. Because, of course, when we're assessing body composition, there are different methods, of course, and you also discuss the difference between direct, indirect, and doubly yes. indirect. Why is this important, and what are the main considerations, you think? Yeah, I think, again, it's really important to then think about what do you want to actually measure. So, for example, skin folds is classed as a two-compartment model, which is simply fat-free mass and fat mass with the assumption that if you measure one, you can predict the other. If that's all we're interested in, then that's where the skin folds can be quite useful. We move then into DEXA, which is a three-compartment model. We know we're able to add bone mineral content into this as well. So if you're interested in the bone mineral content, then that becomes important. And now... As far as I'm aware, there's no single technique that can be a four-compartment model. But what you can begin to do now is integrate techniques. So with a four-compartment model, we can also now begin to look at total body water as well. So by combining DEXA with bioelectrical impedance, we can now get a much fuller picture of this separation. Now, it's important to remember that when we're talking about dividing the body into the different compartments, This is conceptual rather than anatomical. There's no, this is a great anatomical way of doing it. It just helps us to understand that body that little bit more. You asked me about direct, indirect, and doubly indirect. Well, direct takes us back to our cadaver. The only direct way to measure this is cadaveric dissection. And as I said, not convinced we'd convince a coach into letting us do that. But particularly football players, I think they're very, very much valued because how much people pay for these people. So not going to go down the direct measured. Then we get the indirect methods. And this includes things like the hydrostatic weigh-in, earth uh, displacement, plethysmography, which is hard for a Wiganer to say, but we did all right though. <laughs> things like bod bodies, the ones that we've, we've heard, ultrasound and things like that. And this is where we're looking at this relationship between an estimation of body fat, but we're not going into the doubly direct method where we then add a regression equation on top of it. And this is where skin folds, I think, gets a lot of bad press. So skin fold thickness can be an indirect method where that's the current Isaac suggestion. So the International Society for the Advancement of Kinanthropometry, whereby you leave it as an indirect method, 
by reporting it as a sum of eight mil sites. We do skin folds on eight different sites, add it up, you have 50 mils. The problem then is when we, we look at these doubly indirect ones where we put a regression equation in there. And I think there's like hundreds of these equations now. And we showed in this paper, you can take the exact same skinfold sites and you can come out with somebody as a 4% body fat or a 15% body fat, which is remarkably different. And that's where the problem comes when we start using these equations because these equations try and come up with what would that be in a specific population. And they're really hard to be generic. There's a good one that Tom Riley developed for football based on DEXA scans. And that's because in football, you've got quite a narrow bandwidth. You don't have a real range of body compositions. Where in rugby, I can tell you now for sure, there is no prediction equation that is suitable. There is nothing that I can use in a prop forward who maybe has 150 mils that's also suitable for a winger that has maybe 37 mils. So then I've got to decide at what point do I switch from an equation that might be good for a winger to one that might be good for a prop. But I also have some wingers who are up 100 mils. So the point being with that is the best advice at the moment is just to report it as sum of mils and take all that guesswork out of it. And then if what we're interested in tracking change over time, if somebody's come down from 80 mils to 70 mils, they're moving in the right direction. Yeah, I'm looking forward to delving back into some of those areas when we talk about each of the main specific methods. But of course, what we're talking about a lot is the assessment of, we say body composition, but we focus particularly on body fat, skin folds, and so on. Kev, from the perspective of yourself as a scientist who's been working for a very long time and has had a huge amount of impact on easy hey 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 (laughs) the knowledge that we have on muscle muscle protein synthesis hypertrophy that sort of thing from a measurement perspective what are your thoughts in in line with how graham's just been discussing the particularly body fat if you're talking about studies and actually measuring it you know muscle mass for example it probably depends on your ability to get the funding to do certain measurements versus others, you know? So if you can do muscle biopsies, you can, you can measure muscle cross-sectional area. You can actually measure the fibers size. If you can do MRI, you can actually get a reasonable estimation of muscle volume. So that's a far cry from where a practitioner in the field is going to, is going to be. And that's why this paper I think is so important because As we've said several times now, people get focused on these bells and whistles. I can put you in a magnet and get your leg volume, but how many people can you do in any particular amount of time and how much does it cost? And you got to get them there. And so it's not a realistic way to think about things. I really liked what Graham was saying earlier about the value of the information in various, in his example, rugby players that just tells you even within the same sport, you can have this huge variation. And that doesn't even give you the example of a 17 year old female gymnast, you know, trying to get a gold medal versus a 30 year old prop forward. And you're using the same equations, as he said, with that regression that you use and all those regressions, by the way, and Graham sort of hinted at this, but those were all based on cadaver studies. 
I used to always tell my students, yeah, if you really want to get somebody's body composition, let's put them in a blender. You guys are going to get a, a reputation here. <laughs> People will start crossing the street. What were those two guys back in the early 1800s some um, in Edinburgh that would steal cadavers and sell them to med school? Um, there's a film based on it. I can't remember now. But anyway, Graham and I are going to be sneaking around. And Well, we're obviously uh, bringing it since Edinburgh is my hometown. This is going to be... Uh... <laughs> A new, a new reputation. So, Graham, where I'm trying to go with this is obviously is to help people understand the strengths and limitations of these methods and give them the information they need to have the right kinds of impact on their, their athletes, their teams, their clients, and, and so on. But it's not just about how fancy the, the method is or the equipment or whatever. There are issues that are also going to be a factor here, which, of course, we'll unpack on each method in a minute in more detail, but we need to consider things like test, retest, the reliability of that process, the repeatability, and so on, because the assessment is more interesting in terms of how it influences practice when you do multiples of these tests, Mm -hmm. Graham. So what are your thoughts about that? And again, Matt will help with the figure two that I talked about, because one of the considerations in Matt is the experience of of the tester. So we know that Skin folds are particularly effective in a highly experienced Isaac-accredited tester. But they're actually pretty poor if you've got cheap calipers, cheap plastic calipers that stretch, or non-calibrated calipers. We get our calipers calibrated once a year at John Moles, and I wonder how many uncalibrated calipers are out there. And also in untrained individuals, you know, I see people who are just guessing where the sights are. And we know that as little as a centimetre difference, or particularly on a tricep measurement, can be a huge difference. So I remember when I was being taught statistics and people were talking about reliability. I think it might have been Greg Atkinson, who's one of the best sports statisticians I've worked with. The example he used to always use is, can a Ferrari get around Silverstone in two and a half minutes? Well, depends who's driving it. I'd have crashed at the first bend. Doesn't mean that that's not a reliable piece of equipment. It's just the person driving it isn't reliable. So that's a really important point that you touched on. And then there's a nice paper about this new method of ultrasound scanning, which we can touch on later if you want, which doesn't appear to be as good, in my opinion, as skinfolds, unless you're not experienced with skinfold calipers. So then if you've not got anyone qualified within a team in skinfolds, well, then that might be more reliable because it's less sensitive to the technical challenges of using calipers. And then it's the same when you talk about, and I'm sure we'll go into in, in DEXA in a bit more detail. The reason I moved away from DEXA was a growing appreciation of the amount of things that have to be controlled to get reliable data, which in a laboratory setting is pretty easy. I can get people in at the same time of day after following the same diet for two days, the same hydration, fasted, everything like that, not a problem. You know, you work in an elite sport environment and you try and set the the gaffer that I would like all them things controlled so I can get an accurate measure. You have no chance of controlling all that. And we showed, and I mentioned it in the paper, I think at one point, but it's an extreme example, but we had um, somebody making weight for a fight who came in on two consecutive days. And it was something like 10 kilograms of difference in lean mass in 24 hours. Now we know that that is impossible to lose 10 kilograms of lean mass in 24 hours. And it just shows 
But if you're severely dehydrated and glycogen depleted and everything else like that, the profound effect it will have on your data. And when we think about the way athletes know carbohydrate periodize and the different things they do on a daily basis and whether they're on creatine at that point or not, I just think the chance of getting meaningful long-term data index becomes quite limited. You know, BIA is the same thing. The impedance yeah. is probably even more sensitive to hydration than DEXA. But also one thing that we haven't spoken about is we've spoken about the skill of the of the individual. They need to be trained in, in the technique. But often, if different people are doing the measurement, you get completely different. Yeah. In fact, I used to do that when I would teach body composition labs is I would have three different people do the same measurements and then we'd step back and look at it. It could be incredibly variable. You need the same person to repeatedly do the same measurement. That's especially for skin folds, but also for BIA and DEXA and all these other things. So it's incredibly important to be rigid with your techniques. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. This was another motivation for writing this thing was the make of a machine is important to whatever you're using. So not only the same person, the same actual machine. And we know there's three or four different main manufacturers of DEXs. So it's important that if you compare and you compare like with like the same machine. But what I hadn't realized was we got a new machine about four years ago now. So we asked for it because we was in the middle of some long-term studies and our machine had come to the end of its life. It couldn't get serviced anymore. So the same machine, but just the upgraded model. Everything was as similar as we could get. And we were then picking up about a two kilogram difference in lean mass. We had a group of athletes who were tested. And then about two weeks later to test this out, we got them back in to test a machine, but the same people, same conditions. And we were finding that there was consistently two kilograms-ish less lean muscle mass, which obviously caused a major issue because suddenly now, as a percentage body fat, we're reporting that mean percentage body fat had gone from 18 and a half to nearly 22. The club are like, what's going on here? And you're like, you've not all done that in a two or three week period. So not only does the machine need to be the same, the software needs to be the same. And then another thing we found playing with our machines is there's hundreds of different equations within that DEXA. So you can pick which equation you want to use. And people don't realize that ultimately, also with a DEXA scanner, like any of the other ones that get you as a percent, the end stage is using one of these validated prediction equations. And by changing that prediction equation within the DEXA, again, you can change someone's body fat from high 20s to 15s, for example. And also, you said the skill of the operator. You need to segment the body on DEXA. And by where you put them lines can make a world of a difference. Should I tell this story? Maybe. I'll say it with protection. You know, Scander player came out at 10.1%. Potentially, this may or may not have happened. And in, in a certain team at 10.1%, it's a massive fine. At 9.9%, it's you're absolutely fine, which is the ridiculousness of elite sport. We all know that that's nothing. And that's that the error of the machine. Yeah, it's ludicrous, yeah. And just by when you put in them lines, and if you was to move that line half a degree left or right, that could drop it from 10.1 to 9.9. And that, no one knows exactly where that line should be to that degree of accuracy. You can make your mind up whether that player went back with a 9.9 or a 10.1. 
report, but it makes absolutely no difference. And it's the ludicrousy of what still goes on in professional sport. Maybe that's how we can make our millions by doing body composition assessments with athletes and letting them pay us to, to get the right number. Yeah, you know what? I'm sure that has gone on in the past. I can say categorically that's never happened with me. But yeah, you don't know these small errors. And that's what people need to remember as well, that each machine has got a coefficient of variation. We know that it would need to be outside of that for it to be a meaningful change. And that's another thing that I don't think people think about. And I've talked about this a lot with skinfold measurements that you know, if someone's at 82 mils one week and 84 the week after, I don't think they've put on two mils. That is certainly within the error. There's possibly an argument for reporting in multiples of five, but who knows to actually, as much as anything, to stop coaches getting overexcited or over disappointed when there's a one or two mil move either way. But yes, absolutely right. But we need to have an appreciation of the error associated with every single piece of kit from skin folds all the way through to Dexas. Whenever I used to talk to people and they would tell me that they detected a change of 0.1 or in any kind of value of that, let's say body fat, for example, if they said, yeah, my athlete went from 10.2 to 10.4, I'm saying either you do not understand the limitations of the method that you're doing or you're trying to oversell what you can do because you could do that a hundred times and you're going to get that sort of variability if you're trying to repeat body fat percentage, especially because as you said earlier, you have all these levels, you got the regressions that you got to use. You got to decide which equation to use. And it's the same thing as you mentioned earlier about the DEXs. So practitioners, if we're going to bring it back to what they should be thinking about is to not try to oversell what they're doing and to understand that they don't have that kind of precision in these measurements. Well, that's where this concept, which is a whole other podcast in itself, there's ignorance and then there's willful ignorance, isn't there? And that's where I was mentioning earlier is there's some areas I think that are unfortunate in the field where there is an endpoint where somebody might be selling supplements or they're selling tests or, or whatever, but ultimately we're bringing this back to this concept of trust and can we trust the information enough to make the kinds of recommendations that our athletes need to do. And it's very high stakes, isn't it, Graham, where, Mm. yeah, it might be a football team and the impact that those decisions can have on those players, those rugby players, football players. And you're talking tournaments that might, like the Olympics we've just had, for example, these decisions can have very long-ranging impact that can be amazing or they can be disastrous. So listen, let's just refocus this applied aspect here and look at a few of these, the main ones. We have talked about a few of these, like skin folds and DEXA, but I just wanted to just quickly come back to a few, Graham. You could help us yeah. just understand a little bit more about each method and what we should take from it, given the limitations we have on time. And we want people to read this review and some other resources I'll point them to in the show notes. So hydrodensitometry, you referred to underwater weighing and so on. What do we need to know about that and take away from it? Yeah, so it's a two-compartmental method. If we want to come up with a percentage, again, it's doubly indirect. So, you know, it's got the issues of that. The issue with hydrodensitometry is the things you need to put in place to get accurate data. So there are so many considerations of what you need to do. So we need to, first of all, it can be quite uncomfortable for people because we need to 
They weighed underwater in minimal clothing with all expelled from the lungs. So you're holding your breath after an exhalation underwater. It can be expensive. It's time consuming. And I don't think with the modern techniques that are available that there's real, apart from potentially in research studies, I don't really see any place for that anymore in the type of context we're talking about of elite sport done well with highly qualified and highly skilled individuals. It's great. You sort of hinted at this, that the individual who's being measured can make a huge difference in how the measurement goes because you can make assumptions about lung volume, but mostly as, as Graham said, you got to expel all the air and nobody is ever comfortable doing that. Not then going underwater and then holding uh, your breath that's what I mean. for a few seconds. Uh, and, and you can be quite claustrophobic. You can feel really uncomfortable. So yeah, skill in the measurement and skill in the participant, yes. Unlike skin folds, mostly the participant or the person you're measuring just has to sort of stand there and allow you to pinch them, which can be uncomfortable and unpleasant for some people, but it's nowhere near, as you said, going underwater, expelling all the air in your lungs and going underwater. And then you've got to sit there and depending on the precision of the scale, I mean, I don't know about you, but I remember scales just waving back and forth and you're just trying to guess where the where the point is because the person was so uncomfortable that they're making everything shake. Yeah. It's both. I agree with you completely that I think in modern times, I would absolutely recommend what you're saying in the title of your paper here, which is, Hey, why not skin folds instead of this? Yeah. In a practical standing. In a practical one. Correct. The concept of underwater weighing is not, I mean, we don't see it anyway. It doesn't, in an applied setting, it's not something we're going to see. But something we do see, of course, is air displacement plethysmography. And you've mentioned Bob Pod as being the most common method. What about that one? Because we do see that. I've seen in the States, for example, we see a lot of Bob Pods exist over there. What are your thoughts on that? It's a similar principle, isn't it? But rather than water being used to estimate body density, now we're using air to do it. So it's a similar type of technique where you're sat in a chamber in minimal clothing, swim cap type thing. We're using Erno to measure that instead of water. I think it's probably more practical than, let's say, hydrodentistometry. It's an easier one. It's a lot more affordable. It's a lot easier to standardize. But the research would tend to suggest that the ability to pick up subtle changes in athletic body composition that we may be interested in as maybe lacking. So if you was doing a study on weight management and you was looking for quite large changes, five, six, seven kilos over a period of time or whatever, in a research setting, I think there's, there's some merit in this. Again, it's more time consuming than skin folds or something like that. And I don't think my reading of the literature is it's going to give us that degree of sensitivity that we perhaps would like in our applied setting. Kev, I don't know if you've done much with bod pods over time. We never had one. In my experience, we had underwater weighing, the hydro densitometry, and then we went to DEXA and, you know, with skin folds sort of scattered in between, in my experience. So, yeah, I agree with you. I don't see in any of my reading, I can't see why. I mean, I guess it's like you say, it might be more practical, especially in a lab setting, because you don't have to have, I mean, when we were doing underwater weighing, we had an old cattle tank that we bought from a farm and put in the lab. And that's what we're doing. Other people I've seen did it in swimming pools. So 
you know, it's a lot more fussy than just to have your little bod pod in the corner of the lab. I would say between those two, you could make a, an argument for practical that the bod pod might be preferable. But other than that, it's Archimedes principle, isn't it? I mean, both yeah. of them are based on that. Correct. So if we move this over to something that is prolific as a testing method and system, it's a bit of kit that actually we will find in potentially millions of people's houses. You've got these scales that you can stand on in your bathroom and it will tell you not just your weight nowadays, but also what your body fat and water content and so on is. And of course, what I'm talking about there is this technology, this method, BIA, bioelectrical impedance analysis, and or all the way up to some really quite expensive kit, which is the spectroscopy method, the bioelectrical impedance spectroscopy, which potentially is more interesting. I mean, give us some background on that and what your thoughts are as it relates to applied practice in particular, since it is very accessible. The benefit of this one is exactly what you said, Laurent, is it's very accessible and it takes very minimal training from either the user or the tester. Maybe I should caveat that. It takes very minimal training to generate a number. It probably takes a lot more training to generate an accurate number. But if you just wanted, if you was you know in a gym, you can stand on one of these machines and you can get a number with very little training. Important to differentiate, as you just said then, Laura, between BIA, which is bioelectrical impedance analysis, and BIS, bioelectrical impedance spectroscopy. People confuse the two, and often what they will cite is the literature on the more accurate method, the, the BIS to justify the BIA. BIA is basically hand-to-hand, and they can be these handheld machines that you see people holding. BIS is generally you take your shoes off and it's passing the electrical current through the body. And the idea being is that a low current pass through the body will pass through different tissues at different speeds. So it'll pass through fat-free mass much faster than fat mass because of the, the water content. And then based on a, a series of doubly indirect measures, you can get a percentage body fat. But one of the key things, and Kev touched on it early on, and I just said it then, because of the more water content in the fat mass, it passes through it differently. Well, then water content of the human body makes a huge difference. So your hydration state can have a massive effect on when you do it. And that's why I said at the beginning that to get good data is easy. To get good, accurate data might involve the researcher putting a few conditions in place to make sure that we're in a a decent state. We use BIS in our department for measuring total body water from our boxes, our jockeys and things like that. And we're beginning to use it to put it into a four compartment model to do it. I think as a standalone method in athletes, it's probably got limited value because of the issues with hydration and things like that and how well we can control it. I think in a general healthcare setting in the wider population, you know, we're, again, if we're looking at gross changes and we want a decent measure before you do a six-month intervention and you want to see is there a big change, well, then, then subtleties of the difference in the hydration may be less important. But if we're trying to track acute changes in athletes, I think we need to have a, a little bit of caution and we need to, if we are going to use it, promote the more expensive, unfortunately, bioelectrical impedance spectroscopy over the the much cheaper handheld devices. You're probably both more qualified than than I am to say this, but because of the sort of standards that you have to put into this measurement. So for example, 
if I were going to measure your body composition, Graham, if you go and take a pee or not, it's going to change because of what you just said, because of the way it's measured, the passing through the electrical current, or if you've had a meal. So really, if you want to do all these things, you need to standardize. You got to do it in the morning. You got mm-hmm. to make sure that they have the same toilet status. And, you know, we used to always ha- have them just, everybody would drink 500 mils of water ahead of time, just to make sure that they were in the same hydration state. So to do this in athletes, yeah, I'm only imagining, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that that's almost ridiculous to even think that you could get away with that, you know, with a whole group of athletes. You don't need some of that rigor. You can just do it with these people. So I think these are the kind of considerations that practitioners have to think about. It's, it's like, sure, if we're going to do this in the lab, as you said earlier, we bring them in the lab and we can do all those things. Mm. But you can't really do that out in the field. Yeah. And if you think of the coefficient of variation, then the CV will be much wider if you don't do all that. And if you want to know if somebody in a healthcare setting has dropped two stone over a 12-month period, and if that two stone is from body fat, then it might be quite useful. The other thing I didn't mention, Laurent, which is quite important, I think, is that as far as I know, you can't change the prediction equation that's being used in these machines. So when I said there's hundreds of different regression equations, and there's ones that are more suitable to runners and some that are suitable to rugby or football or who are a bit, but not ideal, but more suitable to that population. You can't do that here. You're going to get a one-size-fits-all number. The larger limbs contribute a big proportion of this whole body impedance, where actually we know that these limbs have a, a much lower contribution to overall body mass. So there's another issue with the BIA stuff. With BIA and the software, and and this isn't just BIA, this would be relevant to DEXA, other gadgets we'll get into in a minute, and also manual or software-assisted calculations for body fat percentage, even from skin folds, is going to be the fact that we're, we've got other factors to consider, like how accurate are the scales you've been using, which is another number you add into the equation. You know, Is it the same set of scales? Has the scales been calibrated recently? Is it on a hard surface, on carpet? What you know, Time of day? Is it before and after? Exercise, eating, all those things, aren't they? Maybe we could just quickly mention, you know, the importance of all of those things as it relates to the data these things crunch out for us. Yeah, I think you've summarized it well. I don't know how much more we need to say, Lauren, but most of these techniques, the more we study them, the more we realize, the more things we have to control. And that's why I said right at the onset of this podcast that the purpose of this paper was to look at the equipment under the eye of the applied practitioner, which is a very different lens than looking at it under the eye of a researcher. And I think that's something to keep stressing throughout that this is what we're talking about when all this cannot be controlled as as we well know. I've implemented DEXs, for example, in sports teams and you get given a window and that window may be before or after lunch. And as much as you say, Ideally, I like it first thing in the morning. Well, there's no way it takes 15 minutes-ish to do a scan. I've got 30 players. I'm not going to get them all through. So now what I would need is to do three a day over a period of time to make sure that they're all fasted because there's no way I'm going to get a rugby player fasting to lunch. So it's just really not going to happen. So all you can do in that situation is say, right, well, the last time you did it, you were fed. Can you try and feed a similar? And it just brings in a whole level of, 
complexity that, as you say, is very hard to control. I mean, that brings in an issue that I was thinking about earlier when you were talking was part of the challenge for people like you who do this practice has to be educating and convincing the players, but especially the coaches (laughs) of these kind of complexities. That can't be easy. They want a number to know that this player is getting better or getting worse, right? And so to convince them, hey, wait a minute, you know, this change from 10.5 to 11% body fat, that's just part of the measurement error. You know, it may not mean anything, but the coach is going to say, hey, dude, you need to straighten up and lose that half a percent, right? So I'm sure that that must be a challenge for you guys. It's the bane of my life. I'm sure it is for you, Graham, particularly in a team setting. Competitive people, they start playing off each other. You know, oh, my body fat's higher than yours or, you know, we'll get into that when we talk about why summer skin folds might be a better way to go, Graham, because otherwise we're going to run out of time. Something just came into my head very quickly, though. Maybe if I was doing a version two of this paper, there's another caveat I should have put into it. And that is that maybe I've written this a little bit too much in the lens of the team sport practitioner. And some of the things I've just been talking about then, if you was working with an individual athlete, so I was working one-on-one with a 100-meter sprinter, that might be a lot easier to get that person to come in in the same situation. And given that I don't need to get through a team before lunch, I could control it a little bit better. So that's another context for you there, Lauren. What, yeah. Are you working in a team or an individual sport? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so bringing it back to using methodologies that are practical, convenient, and so on. And we've said that BIA is pretty much a prolific method nowadays. But something that's relatively new on the scene is is ultrasound. And I know ultrasound is not new. It, you know, it's been around for a very long time for other purposes, but specifically for body composition. And I know other potential areas have been looked at, maybe unconvincingly fueling and so on. But but what about ultrasound, Graham? Is that an area you feel has some legs? I think it's interesting. That's my sit on the fence answer often, Lauren, which is the reason I think it's interesting. I, I can see certain situations where it, it could be useful. Now, there's a few things to mention is that what we're seeing emerge in sport at the moment is much cheaper devices. So a lot of the original research was done on the on the high-resolution B-mode devices, which basically are medical devices that cost over 11000 12000 something like that, plus an annual £1,000 software subscription, and take around about 20 minutes of effort. And there does appear to be some decent reliability data if you do all that. There's no much cheaper A-mode models out, which I think look interesting. And as I touched on before, there was a paper suggesting that they're more reliable than skin folds in inexperienced practitioners. And with experienced practitioners, maybe not so much. And I think another example, and Kev touched on this before a little bit, is it seems that the inter-practitioner reliability could be better on it. So where you get two different skin fold practitioners, they may come out with quite different numbers, but if you use the ultrasound, they may be a little bit tighter. My interest in it has come on. Sometimes you work with athletes who have quite a large abdominal region for skin fold thickness, and that can be quite hard with skin fold calipers. And I think the ultrasound may come into its own on the larger athletes, particularly around the abdominal region, where it's hard to get all of the skin fold thickness. 
But I think if you was working with, if you was Isaac accredited, skilled in calipers, and you're working with reasonably lean athletes, I can't see from the literature where it's advantageous over skinfolds. Where it is sexy, as we said at the beginning, is you get a nice printout and it tells you your percentage body fat and it gives you all these different numbers, which have basically just done a prediction equation. And you can pick which equation you want in it. And, and, and again, you can just go from using a Durnham and Worsley to a Jackson and Pollock and drop someone's body fat by almost 10%. So the issue with it is the same as using these regression equations. And I would encourage people, if they were going to use these A-mode ultrasounds, to simply report the sum of mills like we do with Isaac again. But that might not be as, as sexy as what people want out of that machine. Yeah, and it, that, it's a lot about that, the sciencey stuff that Louise Burke talked right. about back when she came out with her paper, right? I mean, we keep coming back to this, and so maybe it's something to stress again, is for the listeners out there who who want to do a good job of this measuring body composition, the first thing you want to do, I think, is go and get your Isaac accreditation and learn how to do skin folds rock solid and move on from there, maybe, if you want to get into the fancy technology. Correct. But that is the fundamental thing that you want to do as a practitioner. Correct. And learn how to do the skin folds properly so that you can be as reliable as possible when you're making these measurements. Kev, there's a reason why I made sure that when we wrote the master's degree in sport nutrition at John Moore's, we integrated the Isaac course into the expense. And my boss hates me for doing it because we cover the fees. But I think it's crucial. And even if you're then going to go on to use some of these ultrasound techniques, well, then the training you've had in Isaac at identifying the sites will make you a more skilled practitioner using that as well. So I completely agree. I think it's a really important qualification for people to get. Yeah, we're going to come back to skin folds in a few minutes. Just quickly, I don't want to spend a long time on a, on a few methods here, but one area that is much newer, but it does look really quite interesting, is this concept of 3D photonic scanning and whilst there may be some angles there particularly with trying to turn that into body composition as opposed to just comparing one avatar to another for example what did you guys find when you researched this and what are your thoughts about it from a practical perspective we didn't find a lot to be honest particularly in athletic situations and and that was probably why of all the methods that we covered in this paper once I sat on the fence on it, but concluded that quite an expensive technique and expensive to buy the equipment, et cetera. And at the moment, lack of athlete-specific validation, it's probably too soon to start to begin to recommend it in an applied setting. But I probably would like to see more done on this over the, over the next few years. It looks interesting. It's rapid. They only take a few seconds, I think around about 10 seconds to do. So, you know, in terms of ripping through a team, it seems to have a low degree of training needed, but you just stand on the plate, that will turn you around and it, and it scans you, comes up with the avatar. And I think once you've got the machine, the costing then becomes pretty low, really. So there was a nice paper on rowers, I think we covered, where it showed it was maybe useful for um, different segmental volumes. So it got, you know, able to look into different regions, which is something that other techniques suffer, such as BIA. So I think if I was to summarise this one, it's probably a watch this space. There's been some suggestions that you're not getting much differences between 3D and DEXA measures. 
And I would imagine that it's something that's going to be less affected by hydration and things like that. So maybe the conclusion on this one should have been, let's get some more research done on this quickly because it, it could be interesting. I don't know, Kev, have you, have you seen much on this one? I'm too old for that one. It comes from the garment industry, doesn't it? Where they would put you in these booths and they scan you and, hey, presto, you're fully measured. You know, you've got a couple of thousand measurements. And and I guess that maybe combined with skim folds, Graham, could be a nice little combo. I remember when DEXA came out, everybody thought, oh, this is magic. You know, and then you start looking into it. And of course, it, like everything, has limitations and you got to be careful. So I would just say, before we get too excited about it to, to make sure that we, as Graham said earlier, let's do the studies and see. I mean, I'm going to go back to my catchphrase. I'm skeptical, but I'm open-minded. I think that's a good summary for this one. Skeptical and open-minded is probably where I am on, on this one and would like to see a, a lot more on it. We've talked a lot about two particular methods, which are going to be the last two we'll, we'll have a chat about. And there's the was referred to as the gold standard DEXA. And then we come back to, to skin faults, which is what I want to end this, this conversation on. And DEXAs, I've had a number of conversations with guest experts on this podcast over the years, including Judy Bone, all about gold standard, not gold plated, maybe. Both of you referred a lot to DEXA, but let's just focus on that a bit. What is it, Graham? Why has it persisted for so long? And why should we maybe move on to you know the final conversation in a minute skin folds as the preference for practice yeah so so dexa you know was originally developed as we all know for assessing bone mineral content helping with osteoporosis identification and based on the way that it measures almost the side effect of it is it will throw out a a lean muscle mass and a percentage body fat so because of that we got really excited about it. And, and in some situations with the right controls put in place, it is a pretty reliable bit of kit. You can get some great data. You can get regional measures, you know, so you can see how it's distributed in the arms, legs, etc. And I think players buy into it. They like it. It takes out some of the skill of the skin folds. You know, yes, you do need some training about putting people on the bed correctly, etc. I think in many ways, it's pretty exciting. One of the issues is a few years ago now, the legality of it changed on DEXAs, which meant that to do a DEXA scan on any individual now either needs full NHS ethical approval for a research study or needs a prescription from a doctor. So anyone who's doing a DEXA scan just to assess body fat, not as part of a research study, no needs a doctor to prescribe it because there is ionizing radiation. Now, the amount of radiation is almost laughable. You can argue that that's a ridiculous thing and why have people started to bother about it. It's about four to five microsieverts. And to put that into context, that's about daily background radiation just from being alive, double your daily background radiation. It's such a small amount, but you do need it. So that creates a whole seam of hassle. And then there's a second point, which is the technical standardization requirements. And the likes of Louise Burke, Julia Bone has done a lot of great work in this. And now we know that we need to control hydration. We need to control muscle glycogen. We need to control the time of the last feed, time of day. So many things that we need to control to get accurate. And then a specific problem that we get working with rugby players is that the machine <laughs> was originally designed 
for osteoporotic old people. Probably not designed for a six and a half foot rugby player. So you've got an option when you put a rugby player on the bed, which is do you chop off the head and leave the feet? Do you chop off the feet and leave the head? Do you bend the knees to 90 degrees? Or do you try and scam them twice and add it all together? And that's just on height. I can tell you for a fact on width, you can't get a rugby player on it either because the shoulders are too wide. So now you've got the option of chopping off one arm and guessing what's going on at the other side, which makes it all complicated. So we had a look at that head on, feet off as part of this review. That changed body fat from around about 13% to 17%, dependent on whether you're chopping off the head or chopping off the feet. And there's no guidance out there what to do with a player who can't fit on the bed. People all come up with their own way of doing it. So going back to what I said, I think as a research tool done a couple of times a year, it's exciting. As an applied tool, it's time-consuming. You need to get people to a university or a hospital. We need to control all them factors that we just said is hard to control. If it's a tall athlete, we need to think about how we're going to do it. And from an ethical perspective, we need a doctor's prescription and we need to make a decision about how often we can do it because there is no strict guidance on that either. But ethics committees get quite uncomfortable if you wanted to do this, let's say, once a month. So there's so many considerations we need to think about. But in my experience as a practitioner working with the likes of England Rugby and that has just made it a tool that's almost impossible to use. Yeah. I can't believe we've managed to have a conversation about uh, this for as long as we already have. And we're still not done because now we come to the humble skinfold, guys. And this is always an interesting one. And you've already mentioned issues like is the equipment even calibrated the difference between quality kit and appropriate competence in the technique and and so on but of course i guess the perception of it is that it is not as sciencey it's not as as high tech could also be a, a consideration although of course there's a big difference between somebody with a pair of plastic calipers and uh, somebody's doing a full level two level three Isaac profile, which involves all sorts of bits of kit, which in my experience actually does come across quite impressive to the individual because of the depth of the assessment and, you know, marking the body up and all the different tools that you use and so on is usually quite intriguing to an individual. But, but Graham, just take us through now what skinfold thickness is and why is that relevant? And maybe the broader techniques like Isaac, for example, which is more than just skinfold, of course. Yeah, so we talk about skinfold. We're basically talking about taking a bifold of skin and body fat. So we're making sure that we're getting the subcutaneous body fat and the skin, and we're not pinching any muscle. And then we're putting a, a set of skinfold calipers on and actually measuring this. And when I was learning this technique or being taught this at university, it was all about a percentage. So you would take these numbers, throw it into, let's say, the Durnham and Worsley equation, which is a classic foresight, bicep, tricep, uh, subscapula, superiliac. So foresight, all upper body, you get a percentage, and then everyone was happy with the percentage. Fortunately, then along came Isaac, who we've mentioned a few times, who tried to standardise this, came up with a much more rigorous way of doing it, more sights, more accurate, teaching how to do the measurements, all things like the calibration of the equipment, and suggested that we now report it as a sum of them multiple sites that you use. 
Now, as we've said a few times, it takes skill of a practitioner. It takes training, whether you're a level one, two or three anthropometrist, as you, as you mentioned before. But what it, when I saw a nice review on this, which I mentioned in our review, of all the techniques, it seems to be the one that's least affected by things that's hard to control in an athlete, such as hydration and glycogen and feeding and things like that. And it's also one where you've got your anthropometric tape in your bag and you've got your, your set of metal harpened and skinfold calipers and it can be done almost anywhere in a relatively quick period of time and it can be done frequently to measure change over time. So that is why after reviewing all of these techniques, when it comes to applied practice, the technique that has probably been thrown away because it's not as sexy is why we came with the comeback skin folds always forgiven because in an applied setting I do think it's going to be the one that gives us the best bang for our book providing we've got a trained practitioner yeah and that's exactly what Kev was talking about you know is this business of if you're going to do it do it properly get trained to use your equipment and so on and to the printouts well that information, there are ways of displaying that information, whether it's Excel and its various charting capabilities all the way through to a number of software platforms that will enable you to produce lovely looking reports. So you kind of do have it all if you think about it, right? May I just say Hmm. that when I read this paper, when I saw this paper, especially the title, I was very jealous, Graham, because I wish I'd thought of writing this paper because it's what I've thought all along is that I've used several of these techniques as we've as the years have gone by, and you get fancy stuff, but there are all these these limitations. But in an applied setting, it's hard to beat the humble skin folds. And so when I saw your paper, I was like, God, he's so much smarter than I am. I wish I'd thought of this. <laughs> you know, I was saying before offline, I, I come up with titles and then think, yeah, we, we can make that into a really nice paper. And I've done it with my paper to podium. I've done it with comeback skin folds. And I've got another one coming out at the moment. I do like a nice catchy title, but you're exactly right. It's something that I've been thinking about for years. And it came to a point was I've got all these techniques available to me. I've read more on these techniques. You know, this is what I teach. This is my job. And let's say most practitioners, but I still use calipers. And I probably need to explain that in a scientific manner as to why after going through that decision tree that we put at the end, you know, in figure two, why I most of the time in applied practice use the skin folds. And that's where it came from. But, you know, really emphasize that I still do use most of the other techniques on that decision tree in some situations, in some research studies, etc. But from an applied practice, yeah, come back skin folds, all is forgiven. That's brilliant, guys. Listen, we thoroughly covered this subject and it's great to know that skin folds have been forgiven by your holinesses holy 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 (laughs) but anyway um i think there's a lot to take home from that and uh, the listeners just to remind you there will be a transcript of this conversation so you can read about it you can listen to it of course and i'll link to all the other papers, resources, even the Isaac uh, website for those of you that may not have heard of it. uh, You should get yourself trained despite the limitations that COVID is having. I do believe there are courses now being run around 
around the globe. And Graham, you're pretty on it when it comes to social media and stuff as well. So for folks that want to follow you, I know you've got a website and Twitter and so on. What are the main ways of of our listeners keeping tabs on you and what you're up to? Yeah, just, you know, social media is probably easiest. So Twitter, it's close underscore nutrition. Instagram is just close nutrition. Or the John Moore's website, I'm easily findable. So yeah, I'm not that hard to stalk. I'll be linking to all of those uh, one way or the other. And obviously, uh, Kev, folk can read about you on our um, about our team link on our website, the IOPM. But if people want to be following you, you're also a little bit out there in Twitter and so on, aren't you, Kev? Yeah, occasionally at Prof Tipper on Twitter. So I do have an Instagram account, but I rarely mess with it. I was expecting to see you as some sort of TikTok uh, superstar, Kev. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. No, I'm too old for that, I think. But um, the main way would be on the IOPN website yeah. or Twitter. I'll link to all of that. Kev, thank you as always. We, of course, will have you back. Um, next week, we're doing a, a podcast all about high-protein diets. So hopefully that'll be our next actual published podcast. Graham, you've been awesome as always. Always appreciate your time, your contribution.